All right. So uh, if the the DOE grid study were a movie, what movie would it be? That one's easy for me. Definitely Star Wars Episode One: Phantom Menace. I have a better example for you. Uh, you, rem- you remember the interview, that movie a few years ago starring uh, James Franco and Seth Rogen that actually had like a ton of controversy before it was released because it resulted in that North Korea hacking Sony. Oh, yeah. Who and can forget a bunch that? of other yeah. stuff. Right. And then and then in the end, the, the movie itself was like really bad and super dull. Well, I didn't think it was that bad. I had reverse hype. So everyone thought it was going to be great. And then everyone said it was terrible. And then I watched it and my expectations were low. And I actually thought it was good. But I agree. It was hyped for a variety of reasons. <laughs> that, first of all, that movie was not good. <laughs> not a good movie. Um, the case well, of the DOE grid study, though, is I think similar to that. Actually, the study itself is not bad. I don't mean to be maligning the study. But uh, relative to how high expectations were how political it was supposed to be how big a deal was made out of it in the process between mid-april when secretary perry issued a memo asking for the study and then when the study actually came out a couple of weeks ago uh the the sort of hype way overshadowed the actual like relatively anodyne findings within the study itself yeah for grid geeks like us uh this report was way better than episode one, Phantom Menace. But I can see where you're going with this. So let's talk about that report. Wait, wait. Do you think it was better than the interview? Yes. I mean, I know you love the movie The Interview. I've, I've recently Yeah, it's better than that. most mediocre movies. I'd rather be reading a 187-page report than, you know, watching most dumb Hollywood blockbusters. All right, fair enough. That's Shale Khan. He's my co-host and head of GTM Research. I'm Stephen Lacey, the editor-in-chief of GTM, and this is The Interchange, weekly conversations on the global energy transformation. This week, we've got a wide-ranging interview with Travis Fisher, a senior advisor at the Department of Energy, and uh, the lead on that widely anticipated grid study. Both Travis and his report have been under the microscope for months now. In the 11 years that I've been covering energy, I have never seen a report get this much critical attention before it was released. And as you rightly pointed out, Shale, um, it's a good report, but it didn't live up to its hype as a political document that critics expected. So with that said, this is a very meaty report. There's a lot of good stuff in there. There's a lot of stuff that people are critical of, a lot of stuff that people agree with. And you're going to see what you want to see in this report. It is still incredibly important because, in theory, it sets the tone for Secretary Rick Perry's energy department priorities. So let's remind people why we've been talking about this since April. Yeah, so this was the first big public thing, really, that Secretary Perry did in his tenure um, in charge of the DOE. You know, he he had come in and been pretty quiet and generally had been, like, tweeting things out in support of various DOE programs, hadn't gotten super political. And then sort of out of nowhere on April 14th, he issues this memo that is requesting a study to get done. And a lot of people read the memo as being a a dog whistle for some of the administration's priorities, particularly surrounding saving coal, which the, the president has stated desire to do a lot of times. So the memo sparked this 
really heated exchange. And as we've said before, in some ways, I think the memo uh, resulted in a lot of really good research being released on the grid and its state, not just the study itself, but what was happening in the interim. But it was viewed, I think, as kind of a, a landmark, as you said, of what Secretary Perry's tenure is going to look like and the types of things that he's going to push for. So there's just a ton of scrutiny on it. This is a really important interview for us because Travis has been laying low since he got to DOE, has kept his head down when this report finally got assigned to him. Um, he's just not been talking to the press. He has been under some personal attacks. A lot of his previous work has been dredged up, and many people speculated about the types of political agenda that he would, in theory, bring to this process. And in this interview, he unpacks the process, and I think we do get a pretty good take on what he was thinking uh, as this report got assigned to him and as he started working with other teams at DOE, we unpack some of his philosophy about free markets and where he's coming from ideologically. And that's quite interesting as well. And then we work our way through the report and try to get as detailed as possible about some of the agendas that he, that the, his team and he are setting in this report, some of which have gotten roundly criticized and some of which have gotten praised by the distributed energy, renewable energy industry. So there is a lot to work through in this. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's a 187 page study. It's dense. There's a lot in it. Even, you know, lots of bits of it refer to other studies that have been done by like the ISOs and by NERC and all these others. Even the findings themselves and the recommendations are a little bit wonky. So it's it's deep down in the weeds, which I think in some ways is not what was expected um, when Secretary Perry issued the memo. But as a result, there's a lot to talk about in there. Uh, questions about the state and the evolving mix on the grid and, and what we need to do to ensure that we retain affordability, reliability, resiliency, and, and arguably decarbonization. So we got to all of that with him. So without further ado, let's Get into our conversation with Travis Fisher, a senior advisor at the Department of Energy. We started off at the very beginning, how Travis became a free market economist. And I read in an interview at one point that you um, were once a, a left-leaning moderate. I think confused was the word you used until your junior year as an undergraduate when you started reading classic works on free markets. And then you became devoted to the field of economics. What catalyzed that shift for you early in your career in school? I would say, instead of confused, I would say inconsistent, because I think the, you know, from the free market point of view, there, there are a lot of crossovers between sort of the free market view and sort of the, the left end of the spectrum. So I think the, the thing that stood out to me was coming from that point of view, from sort of the uh, general left half of the spectrum, I think what appealed to me about free markets was the harmony that, that can come from this is a system that can take sort of uh, inherent human selfishness and and turn it into a good thing. So you went into the belly of the beast and went into the most highly regulated industry that I can think of, energy. What catalyzed the shift into energy specifically and energy economics? Well, I've heard people say the uh, the fireman goes to the fire, right? So I'm not going to be sort of a, a free market advocate and then stand back and say, well, somebody else take on the, the hard issues. It was instead I, I decided to go straight to this industry precisely because it it's one of the most bogged down by, you know, regs and subsidies and, and, and interventions across the board, I would say. You spent 
seven years at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission as an economist. You were not a fan of some of the rules put in place there, such as uh, Order 745 on demand response, which you thought was representative of this overstepping of federal authority. Can you give us some examples of things that you worked on, or maybe some examples of areas where you thought FERC was overstepping its bounds? Sure. And I was able to write about topics like Order uh, 745 because I, I didn't work on 745, but I followed the issues very closely. And I guess the uh, the interesting thing for me on that was watching it go through each stage. So you have the, you know, this is an administrative law nerd type thing, and I don't have a law background, but it was it was fun for me to watch. Uh, you know, I, I ultimately think it, it turned out the wrong way, but it was interesting to watch go for, to watch it go from the staff level, where you very clearly had a chairman in John Wellinghoff who was very interested in driving an agenda, and the way it it manifested itself was in the sort of full LMP, full wholesale price for demand response. And at the same time, you had not just some infighting within the commission itself, but also sort of the, uh, the amicus brief by economists. And I, you know, my, my joke was that anytime you get that many economists agreeing on something, there's, you know, there's something there. So the fact that all the economists were going against what FERC decided, and then it went through the courts, it was, it was interesting to watch sort of how FERC held up in, in that fight. And actually, you know, th- this gets into you know, sort of the appropriate amount of court review of, of things like FERC rules. And I thought FERC got away with one there because they were ultimately upheld by the Supreme Court. And I, I don't agree with that. So then you come into DOE under the new administration. And on April 14th of this year, Secretary Perry issues this memo requesting that a study get done on uh, grid reliability and baseload resources and the like. Um, how did you end up being the one who got tasked with it? And I guess more broadly, sort of what was your role in this study in relation to everybody else who worked on it? Well, as soon as the April 14th memo came to our chief of staff, it became clear that we needed somebody to to own it. And we looked initially, Brian looked initially, and I'm talking about Brian McCormick, who's the chief of staff, looked initially at the Office of Electricity. Uh, the full name would be Office of Electricity Delivery and Energy Reliability, headed up by Pat Hoffman, who is amazing, by the way. Brian looked at Office of Electricity as sort of the the, the point office for it. And at the time, I was the only appointee in the Office of Electricity. So I uh, I don't want to say I was thrown under the bus, but it, it made sense that if we're going to have an appointee lead the process, uh, given that it was a secretarial memo that, that started it off, that I would be the coordinator for the study, along with Pat Hoffman. So you get tasked with this study, and pretty much immediately um, after the memo gets released, the you know kind of political uproar within the energy community begins very quickly. I think a lot of people, especially progressives, saw the memo as like a dog whistle um, for some of the administration's priorities on, especially on saving coal. And so they started kind of digging into your historical track record and things that you'd said before you were at DOE. Did you anticipate the, like how politicized this would be from the start? Did you know it was going to get the attention that it got? Because most, you know, DOE studies obviously don't get this, this level of scrutiny. I did not anticipate it. And looking back on it, I can understand 
how the the terminology, the the phrasing of the April fourteenth memo would would cause some. Uh, as you said, it was it was a bit of a dog whistle, so it caused some reaction from folks who, for example, don't even like using the term baseload. Uh, but I mean, the the extent to which it got political and even personal, I did not see that coming. And I was personally, I, I would prefer to stay out of the news. But you know, my involvement leaked fairly early on. Uh, you know, the the whole process has been sort of a history of leaks of personnel and drafts and things like that. And uh, I, I didn't expect the personal attacks. And and that brings us to a couple points in the process. I do want to get to the leak itself, but uh, I'm actually just really curious what you thought when this report was handed over to you and, you're, and, and in theory you had 60 days to complete it. Well, again, in hindsight, 60 days was uh, not just ambitious, but uh, I would say impossible just because the the amount of input that we needed to receive from the different elements of of the department and the feedback and you know as as you receive a new round of edits you know i thought of it as you're at some points you're turning you're putting the draft into a blender and then you sort of have to reconstitute it after the fact and so it wasn't just putting the same draft through a few different iterations it was essentially rewriting the draft several times based on staff input so that in itself you know, if we started with a complete first draft on April 14th, well, that would be the only way that, that we would have it done in 60 days. So it, it ended up taking 120, but I think it was worth the extra time and the extra thought and just to make sure that it was a, a, a well-researched and well-founded product. So you were leading up the effort, but presumably we're not the only one involved apart from even even beyond the folks who are giving feedback, I presume there were some others who are sort of intimately involved in the writing of it. There are other people at the Office of Electricity, but um, it, it read to me like there were there were pieces there that came out of studies that were done or work that gets done at the national labs. Can you speak a little bit, at least in generic terms, to kind of who else was involved? Sure. So early on, our our process was to with within the Office of Electricity was to involve key point people from other offices that, that had the right expertise. So, you know, each office has folks who, uh, who are experts in, you know, such a wide variety of things that you kind of know offhand who's going to be sort of the, the power grid expert with, within a given office. And a great example is, you know, we started going through, you know, which offices have equities have sort of a, a stake in this kind of study. And off the bat, we obviously all the, all the fuels, centered offices. So you have the uh, renewables office, you have nuclear energy, fossil energy. Um, we knew that we would have to rely quite a bit on EIA and their data. And we wanted to make that a back and forth because we, we don't want to use their data in a way that they're uncomfortable with. Uh, so we, we ended up assigning point people from that point of view. And then, uh, you know, it, it actually, just on the, on the staff level, we engaged a, a lot of folks. Now on the on the lab level, we went through the GMLC, the Grid Modernization Lab Consortium, and used a, a, a point person through there who sort of coordinated the lab effort. And we had a May 4th event where we had a bunch of lab folks in the same room, had people present their best work, their most uh, applicable work, and there was a lot of good stuff. I would say sort of standing out would be 
the Berkeley lab work. And so that ended up sort of being a, a focus for us was, you know, it, it, on the one hand, it gave us really good information. On the other hand, it, it indicated who were the key personnel that we would need, you know, subsequent rounds of review and sort of to, we, we wanted to make sure that those folks were involved throughout the whole process. At some point, someone stops this blender. You described the, the process as put, putting all these teams and sources of information into a blender. And at, someone, at some point, someone stops that blender, pulls it out, and leaks a draft to the press. Um, how did that feel when that happened? What, and did that have an impact on the release date, the process, conclusions, etc.? Uh, this feels like a Barbara Walters question. You're trying to get me emotional. It, my my fe- my feelings <laughs> my feelings on the matter were, you know, on some level it was a sense of betrayal because it we had been very open and inclusive throughout the whole process, and we had already set in motion a very inclusive and wide ranging and information gathering process before all of that. So it sort of it it made me feel like it it, it backfired to be inclusive. On the other hand, I mean, I'm trying to think of the ways. So I've I've put it in terms of you know we have we have processes in place that that establish you know a certain amount of transparency. We have the Freedom of Information Act, which is a separate thing, but it does it gets at the same issue of you know in in your previous podcast you you, you mentioned that as a taxpayer you want some reassurance that the apparatus is working and you want some transparency into how we're doing these studies. And I understand that completely. And I think that's what the FOIA process is for. On the other hand, there are checks against complete transparency and the FOIA process recognizes and the, the law it's, it's, it's part of the, the, the FOIA process that you actually have a protection against uh, staff debates you know, there's there's a chilling effect when it's 100% transparent. And if you could imagine, if we take that to the extreme, you know, in our closed-door meetings, imagine if we invite Stephen Lacey, and it's all on the record, and we say, look, all of our debates, all of our opinions, every single thing that we say here is on the record. That would, that would be a much different process than one that says, look, we're allowed to have closed-door meetings, we're allowed to propose really stupid ideas because we know that there's that they're not going to be published immediately, and instead, what what we had was, you know, we we're halfway through the process and the thing gets published, and I I think that it's a very it's it's interesting. I know there has to be a balance between transparency, you know, transparency, accountability, and all of that, but also I think you get a stronger product in the end if you allow some elements of internal debate. So I agree with you generally on this, and I said it on the other podcast. I was uncomfortable. With the lead. Can I stop you but, there, Shale, real quick? Just for listeners who don't know, this was a podcast. If you're coming to this interview uh, in this podcast for the first time, this is an episode we recorded a few weeks ago when the report actually leaked, and Shale and I were sort of speculating and ruminating on the consequences. So I just want to mention that that's what Travis was referring to. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I feel for you um, and said this on that other episode as well, where like if somebody were leaking a partially complete draft of a report that my team was writing, I would be uncomfortable with that as well. So, I mean, I'm not in the public sector, but nonetheless, um, point taken. I do wonder, you know, my presumption is that whoever did leak the draft did so out of fear that the ultimate report 
would be politicized in a way that that draft was not, or that the findings would be changed. I mean, you said you were running a pretty open, transparent process internally. Do you think that there was any sort of founding for that fear, or was somebody just totally worried for no reason? My hunch is that whoever leaked it was not involved in sort of the front end of the process and was stunned by the you know the the clarity of the draft at the time and i'm i'm sure they thought that it wasn't going to see daylight and you know that that's sort of what, what they've said they're on the record and in, in certain other articles um i personally don't think there's any founding to that at all and in fact sort of since the final has been published some people have credited the leaker with somehow changing the outcome and saying, oh, well, they, they painted the DOE into a corner and, and made this result be what it is. Um, the only thing the leak changed was we had to tighten the process a bit to make sure that it wasn't going to go back to whoever leaked it. So really all it did was sort of uh, pull us in and we had to keep tighter control over the document. But in terms of the politics of it, the, you know, the findings, the scope of the research, none of that changed. So I don't think it's founded at all that, that, you know, the reason behind the leak or the, the idea that the leak had any effect on the, on the findings, like that's, there's just no founding to it. Well, I think this is a good time to talk about the findings and the recommendations. Shale, do you want to summarize some of the findings and, uh, and walk through some of the ones that are interesting to you? Yeah, so I, I like the way that uh, the second chapter of the study lays out the the key findings in sort of three different categories. So I think we could talk about those one by one. But to me, the kind of overarching finding of the study, which I'm interested to get your take, Travis, on whether you think this is accurate or not. But to me, the, the overarching finding was that, largely speaking today, electricity markets are functioning as designed. We have totally sufficient reliability and reserve margins. We don't. We haven't actually experienced any massive blackouts in quite a while. We have a changing resource mix. But thus far, markets are able to adapt to that as they stand today. And yet you foresee, um, or the study foresees, some challenges around the corner that you think need to be elevated and for which there should be more urgency to address. Is that an accurate description? I think that's accurate. And sort of the, you know, the, we're not the only ones saying this. And that's that's one of the critiques that, that we've gotten so far is that we don't say anything new. I I would push back on that to the extent that we we do probably the best postmortem on power plant retirements that, that I've seen. And sort of over the past 15 years, there's certainly things worth examining. And I think in terms of the, the way we, we boiled it down into a single paper, that, that's, that's sort of the, the value added here. But as, as, far as, it, as far as the focus on electricity markets goes, yeah, I think as they were designed there, they were doing incredibly well. I think the significant amount of out-of-market action from states that, that we're seeing is is evidence that uh, there are reasons to move outside of the design parameters. So that sort of speaks to the first area of findings in the study, which was so that the question that was asked in the memo was whether the changing nature of the electricity fuel mix is challenging the original policy assumption that shaped the creation of electricity markets, which is a little bit wonky. But the result that is suggested in the study is says that, quote unquote, uh, or sorry, says that, quote, 
changing circumstances have challenged both centrally organized and to a lesser extent vertically integrated markets. So can you just go into like a little bit more detail on the way in which you see changing circumstances today as posing a threat in the future to how the markets are designed? Sure. I think probably the biggest thing is the, you know, we, this is, this gets very wonky very quickly, but we talk about the missing money problem, which some folks, you know, we we were encouraged to, uh, to use that term with caution because it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But as, as I understand it, and as, as we, as we talk about it in, in the context of the report, it really is, I mean, there is a revenue problem in wholesale electricity right now. There's a significant fall just in terms of the, uh, if, if you look at the shape of the supply curve overall with very low natural gas prices, you, you already see that the, the prospects of, of price spikes in general day-to-day activity are, are just not there in, in the way that they used to be. And it's sort of the, you know, the, there's a, there's a combined effect of a lot of different things. So it's gas prices flattening that supply curve. It's lower demand than expected, putting you on different parts of that supply curve. It, in both cases, you're, you're going to get less price spikes. Then you have somewhat of a shifting out based on very low marginal cost units. So we're talking about new wind and new solar. On top of all of that, you have for the units that are affected by environmental regs, you know, that's, that's a new cost for them too. So especially from the point of view of, you know, the historical baseload units, those are under particular stress because of all of those, those, those four things combined. Right. So I think that, uh, most folks on whatever side of this conversation they sit on would agree with you. There's clearly, we have, we're seeing an increasing volume of retirements of these baseload plants, largely coal and nuclear. And I think that most people generally also agreed about your, uh, diagnosis of the causes, the, the study itself identifies low natural gas prices as the primary cause, which I think is is generally agreed upon, and then identifies those other three, flattening demand, um, increasing volume of zero marginal cost or low marginal cost wind and solar and environmental regs. I think there, there'd probably be some debate about the magnitude of those other impacts today and so on. But broadly speaking, I think we could find agreement there. Now, the the next question where I think it gets a little bit more controversial, or at least where there's some reasonable debate, is whether that matters. Because like whether the missing money for baseload plants, for inflexible resources, is actually a problem. And the way that the study sort of addresses this is by sort of diverting to a conversation about reliability and resiliency. So is that why the missing money problem is should even be addressed? Well, I think it's worth addressing on its own, and it was already being talked about quite a bit on its own. I think that conversation is only speeding up. Now, I think there are certain policy implications that, that, that make it even more important, and I would point in that case to, you know, you, you have subsidies that, that impact the market directly in the form of uh, the PTC and RECs and things like that. But I think the uh, probably the, the, the more important thing is is obviously the the long term effects of if we allow things to go as they've been going for the past few years, you know, what what we're seeing is just an incredible amount of natural gas and VRE 
variable renewable energy. And in, in, in the study, we, we just used VRE instead of talking about wind and solar. So in, in this world where we're seeing a, a lot of new gas and a lot of new VRE, that raises a, a, a lot of interesting questions that we never really had to talk about before. You know, sort of the, of, of course, that, that pushes you into a resilience conversation because those resources have very different resilience characteristics, you know, that, that we haven't seen from, for example, coal and, and nuke. So that's, it, it is sort of the window into the conversation. The, the market dynamics can't be separated from the resilience question because the, the one is causing the other. Right. And, and I want to take a, another moment to reflect on this a little bit deeper. So, so obviously a lot of outlets have really honed in on this um, one of the findings, which is that natural gas and lower than expected demand are a couple primary drivers for speeding up baseload power plant retirements. So it does appear to contradict a statement you made in a 2015 report um, at the Institute for Energy Research, which was that the single greatest threat to reliable electricity in the U.S. doesn't come from natural disturbances or human attacks, rather the host of ba bad policies now coming from the federal government. Um, how do you square the conclusions from the current DOE report with that past conclusion? And has your thinking evolved in any way since that 2015 study on policy threats to the U.S. power grid? Well, I'd like to point out a couple of things. First, I wasn't the author of the DOE report. I was the coordinator of the effort. And we had, at the end of the day, I tallied up uh, multiple dozens of people who added to the effort and more than two-thirds of which were career feds, uh, some of which were contractors, some of which were appointees. And of course, I, I'm an appointee. So you know, the, the fact that I was sort of identified as, as the lead author of the study early on, I, you know, on the one hand, that's, that's not even perfectly accurate. But uh, Right, this is like shorthand in the press. So to compare the DOE report to my previous work is already, you know, you're comparing the work of one person in 2015 to... Uh, three or four dozen people in, in 2017. But even with that, you know, point, point taken, of, of, of course my thinking has evolved quite a bit, and I would argue that the policy environment has involved, evolved quite a bit. So, for example, in 2015, we were looking at the PTC forever, uh, and that has changed. It's on a phase-out schedule now. In 2015, we were looking at uh, the Clean Power Plan. That has changed quite a bit. So just... You know, in an apples to apples way, we're we're not comparing the same policy environment. So of course, the policy threats have changed quite a bit. So that that's that's one element. And on the other hand, I mean, they're actually, you know, I I would say the the threats that we were seeing at the time they were on the order of a small operation trying to shoot up transformers at the Metcalf station in California that ended up not causing any catastrophic blackouts. So that was sort of the, the context at the time. Since then, of course, I mean, we've seen a lot of different cyber attacks. There's, you know, what, what we saw in Ukraine. And, you know, we're, we're seeing more and more of that even now in, in the U.S. And so that is a growing threat. Certainly on the cyber front is a growing threat. And the policy, the, the policy threats I was seeing in 2015 have all basically gone away. So Yes, things have changed, and I, I, I think it's, uh, I, you know, I would still agree from the point of view of 2015 with what I wrote at the time, but now things have changed quite a bit. 
I want to get back to the question of the missing money problem and as and sort of how it relates to reliability because I think this is a bit of where the crux of the debate around the study's results lies, which is the the current presidential administration seems to sort of believe a priori that we need to save coal. Um, so it's on the decline, but but coal is sort of an inherent good, not and isn't really making that argument from a, a grid reliability perspective. This study doesn't exactly call out coal or even baseload, but um, sort of raises the question, which is which is kind of what you were doing in your answer a minute ago, of just saying, well, we have this changing fuel mix, we have a bunch of new variable renewable energy resources um, that raises a bunch of new kinds of questions that we need to answer around reliability and to me in some ways it seems like you're sort of shying away not you specifically but the study sort of shying away from what it seemed like was the desired outcome which was to say we have a reliability crisis on our hands if we um, retire all this coal and nuclear this is going to be a problem but instead the study kind of stops short and says we should accelerate our efforts to study this and we should work with FERC and NERC and the, the ISOs and so on to do that does that feel like it's to you because uh, we're not yet at the point where we can answer this question, where we really do just need to do more study to figure out what's required for reliability, or is there some other reason? Well, I think this actually gets at the difference between reliability and resilience. And I think one key difference there is, you know, of course we have a reliable grid, and the, probably some of the best work right now is being done by PJM, and you know, other RTOs are, are doing very similar work, which is of the reliable grids that, that, that we have to analyze, um, how do we guarantee resilience among those? And even, you know, even if we can, if we can take a step back and say sort of there's a, there's two different ways to see even reliability on its own, which is sort of the, the operational second by second version. And then there's the, the resource adequacy point of view, which is years out and saying we, we need enough, generation capacity available to meet demand at, at any moment. Uh, so I think both of those require studying. And I, I think the, the thing there is we, I'm not saying we have it all figured out, but that is a, a much more comfortable point of view to say, look, I, I think, I think we're doing well on that front. I think where we're doing less well is the resilience point of view, which is, you know, of, of the different portfolios that, that you can test against an event like a hurricane or a polar vortex how many of those mixes are also are not just reliable, but also resilient. And when PJM did that in a, I believe this came out in March of the 90 something portfolios that were considered desirable from a reliability point of view, only a third of those were also resilient. So there's a huge difference there between saying that we have a good handle on reliability and saying we, we know exactly what, what it takes to, to create a resilient grid. So the thing about resiliency, right, is, again, where there's, I think, some debate or where there will ultimately be some debate. I think everybody agrees we want both a reliable and a resilient grid. The question is what resources are going to provide that, um, given all the other considerations in the market, the need to maintain low cost, and um, we can talk about the need to mitigate climate change in a bit. But even setting that aside, like some people will make the argument, okay, so the study says, uh, in a couple of different places that 
and, it, and this is part of what that PJM study said as well, is sort of like if you if you get rid of all these baseload resources, if you get rid of coal and, and nuclear, then you can run into an issue like we almost had during the polar vortex where um, there was a couple of times where wind generation was down, natural gas was unavailable. And so PJM had to rely on some coal plants that would otherwise have retired or actually did retire since then to keep the power on. But it also points out that coal can suffer from, you know, stockpiles can freeze. Many coal plants don't have stockpiles. So no resource is perfect when it comes to resiliency. It also doesn't, to me, really seem to take seriously, the PJM study doesn't really take seriously the kind of new suite of solutions that potentially can supplement resiliency, things like microgrids um, and and energy storage more generally. So I, I think the question again here is like, is it that we are not taking resiliency seriously enough at this point, or is it that we're relying on a somewhat dated notion of what provides resiliency, what can provide resiliency in order to determine what's required from a market design perspective? Well, I don't think it's dated. I think, you know, the, the polar vortex was only 2014. And I, I think we're still learning things about that. And we, we go through that in the report was sort of the, the relative performance of, of different types of power plants. And as, as you know, coal suffered setbacks, but not nearly as much as gas. And, you know, as we looked at the data, the nuclear fleet did it especially well, which is exactly what we're seeing now with hurricane Harvey and the, the nuclear plants in Texas, they're still operating 100%. So it's, you know, you can't generalize based on a, a type of power plant, but I think it's important to, to keep things like that in mind. And, you know, these are the same plants. Uh, and I, I, I don't know if we're going to get through the resilience homework in time to save some of these plants, but you're seeing very hard economic times fall on the most resilient plants, which, which would be the nuke fleet. So that's, that's why the, the, the market conversation and the re- resilience conversation, I think they both, need to happen, but they also need to happen in short order. So I want to get into the recommendations, but this is probably a good time to bring up something that I've been thinking a lot about as I've read through this report. Um, you know, it's a great accounting of what's happening on the grid, but there's one big thing that's missing from this report, climate change, and by extension, public health impacts. And if we factor decarbonization or for that matter, local air pollution into this conversation, I do think it do- it takes on a d- different context. It takes on a completely different context. If we strip those factors out, then this becomes um, a simple back and forth about the details of market rules. Um, certainly a fun one, but not one with the same sense of urgency, I'd argue. Um, as long as you make the grid more reliable or resilient, it doesn't matter what the grid mix looks like. If, you know, if it's coal, so be it. Um, but climate change and local air pollution, they do matter. And that has directly dictated a lot of the policy decisions that utilities and states and the federal government had made to promote renewables and efficiency. So if we value an increasingly decarbonized grid, you know, we can still have this conversation, but it does necessarily change the context of the conversation about the resource mix we want and what resiliency looks like. So do you think that greenhouse gas emissions should be factored into this kind of analysis? Well, I think that's a question for the secretary. You know, as far as the staff report is concerned, we were answering the, the questions as as best we could. So, you know, if if 
he ought to be asking those questions. That's more of a conversation for, for him. But I, I, I can say, you know, just based on my conversations with, with, with him, not necessarily re- relating to the study, he is very concerned with, with CO2. And he, his, his take on it is, look, if you, if you want to get serious about CO2, why are so many people against the existing nuclear power plants that, that, that we have? And I think that's that's a fair question to start with because the policies that we're seeing, especially in California, they're very clearly anti-nuke. And at the same time, this is, you know, if you focus on the Diablo Canyon plant, that's 2.3 gigawatts of CO2 and other air pollutant emissions-free electricity. So if, if you're if your policy plan is to shut down 2.3 gigawatts of CO2 free electricity, then, then I'm not, I'm not sure that I can come to that conversation and say, look, we are both on the same page here because we both care about CO2. I, you know, that, that as a starting point is, uh, is kind of off putting for me. I mean, it's totally fair. And it's, it's the basis of a number of conversations we've had on this podcast recently. Uh, we, we have sort of tried to define and work out this concept of decarbonization. We've debated the idea of 100% renewable energy. We've looked at the role of CCS and nuclear in an 80% or 100% decarbonized electric grid. So I, I t- completely agree with you with that framing, and it's a very important question to be asking ourselves. Um, let me ask the question this way. So let's assume that we, we do add in climate change, greenhouse gas emissions, you do still need to think about reliability resiliency, um, you know, but with this transition to a low carbon fuel mix, do you think we have the sufficient tools, the technologies or market levers to support that while still living up to the standards that you outline in this report of resiliency and reliability? Like, is that a conversation that we could be having? Do you believe that we have the the market mechanisms and tools to uh basically implement what you're talking about in this report in that decarbonized framework. If we're, if we're going to take on the, that, that framework, you know, I, I, I don't think we have very good tools. I mean, just from the, the pure engineering point of view of trying to balance supply and demand, there really isn't a whole lot of dispatchable CO2 free source of electricity that, that you can ramp up and down easily. I mean, we have, decent amount of hydroelectricity in places where where that resource is available but uh you know as far as vre and and storage i i just i don't see it coming along anywhere near fast enough to to make a a a dent in the next few years i mean this is a side conversation that could take us way down a rabbit hole but i guess what i would say is that you know the study that you led itself identifies what i think a lot of people would see as the solutions to that challenge it has a whole section on energy storage it talks about expanded transmission and market integration um it it even mentions things like demand response and load control some places as well so the folks who believe you can get to high penetrations of renewables without reliability or resiliency concerns believe in a future that has uh, or have studied a future that has much higher proliferation of all of those things, in, as well as hydro, um, which you mentioned as well. And, you know, I appreciated that all those things were incorporated within the study. I thought that in the, you know, in the belly of the study, it mentions all the right things. It then sort of doesn't 
talk about those a whole lot, either in the findings or in the recommendations I found. But I do think that a lot of it has to do with market rules and regulations rather than technology constraints, because our reporters go and talk to utilities every day, tour pilot plants, tour commercialized plants, where they're not trying to necessarily figure out the whether, um, let's say, solar plus storage um, or behind the meter controls actually work for uh, frequency regulation or for capacity services, they've found that these can actually work. It's just a matter of getting the market me- mechanisms correct so that they can potentially play in the market. I am not downplaying the integration challenges on a mass scale, but I do think that there are probably fewer technical constraints than there are market rule constraints at this point to thinking about using distributed energy new types of microgrids, whatever you want to throw in this distributed energy landscape for these same kinds of services that we're talking about. Yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't disagree with that. I think from from the economist point of view, you know, it's it's one thing to answer the engineering questions. It's 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 yet another to say we can do all of these things and it won't have an impact on rates. So I I think from from that point of view, a lot of the things that you're talking about are, are very expensive options. I mean the the storage options available the, the you know the current class of, of of battery storage i mean it it if you want to build a, a vre plus storage grid you know i i certainly wouldn't argue against that from a from an engineering point of view i i would just say you know if if we're going that route in 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 terms of policy if it's if 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 we decide to go down that route we should do it with eyes open with a very clear idea of of the cost of doing so. That actually leads me to a question I want to ask you anyway. In the study, a couple of places within the study, and then I thought interesting also, interestingly also in Secretary Perry's cover letter um, when the study was released, it talks a little bit about the the potential trade-off between cost and reliability. And basically it seems like it's trying to sort of identify to somebody that you need to pay attention to the fact that, it, look, it might cost us more to have a reliable or resilient grid. Why did you think it was important to kind of make that point repeatedly? Well, I think the, in general, the, the whole point behind the staff report is to inform policy. So in, in our role as, as DOE staff, we were trying to inform the secretary and in, in his choices that, that he has to make going forward. And I think he saw a lot of the same things, which were basically, look, if if we want to if we want to make this type of policy, if we want to as sort of a, a a new policy shift to to make the grid as resilient as possible, that 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 certainly comes at a at a cost, which is the same policy trade off as if you wanted to radically decarbonize the grid, or or you know you, you can fill in the blank with the, with the with the policy that that you're choosing to go after, but each one of those choices come comes with its own set of costs. So I think that's just important as a general note to to understand the the price tag of of the thing you're going after. I'd like to transition now into the policy recommendations. There are seven here. Shale and I were talking through the report before we started this interview, and we kind of honed in on the first four. Shale, do you want to unpack the ones you think are most important and we can talk about those individually? Sure. So the first one I thought was interesting because it's the first policy recommendation, but it you can very quickly 
descend into deep electricity market wonkiness when trying to understand it, which is basically what I spent this weekend doing. It's it. The first one suggests that FERC should expedite its efforts to improve energy price formation um, in centralized wholesale electricity markets. And so, the first thing I asked Travis when I got on the phone with him was like, can you please help me understand energy price formation? Right. Which is what you spent the weekend trying to figure out too. Yeah, exactly. I like, I started like frantically Googling energy price formation. I read the PJM, uh, like suggestion of what they should do to change their electricity markets from a couple of months ago. I chatted with a few former FERC folks. So I'm like halfway there now, but, uh, Travis, maybe you can help us. So in, the simplest terms that you can manage given the subject matter. Can you explain what the price formation challenge is that you foresee now and why we need to expedite efforts on it? Well, as a first note, I should just say, you know, when, when folks saw that policy rec, they said, well, we're, we're already doing this. And sort of the, the feedback, I mean, that, that is a point well taken. FERC is taking steps. I think the, the, the word expedite is key, though, because you know we could have made this policy rec two or three years ago, and it would have been the same. So uh, it's an open question as to you know why it's taking so long, and you know I you know respect the stakeholder processes that have to go on at the RTOs and at FERC, but really it's it isn't anything new. It's 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 what FERC has already been going after, and part of it is to allow inflexible units to, to set LMP. So what, what, what that would do in practice is to put somewhat of a, uh, of a price floor on LMP in sort of off-peak hours. So without going full wonk on you, it, it really, if you're, for example, a, a, a very large nuke plant, and as demand falls to the point where, you know, you're not needed for only a, you know, a few hours, it, it, you get this very strange, very aggressive fall in price. And I think what, what that does in the, in the off-peak hours for the inflexible units like you know, a, a large nuke plant, I mean, that is a make-or-break kind of thing for them. And it is really, it's, it, it's in the context of the markets, it's a, it's a small tweak. So, okay, if I can attempt to reword this a little bit and put a little bit more meat on the bone. So this, the situation as it stands today, so this is PJM um, as a proposal from June that we'll link to in the show notes here about price formation, where they're recommending some changes based on pretty much exactly what you're describing. So the situation as it stands today is if you're an inflexible generator, meaning if you're a baseload plant, so probably your nuclear or your coal, um, you have some minimum operating, you have to, you have to continue operating. It's not economic or in some cases, technically possible for you to basically just shut on and off all the time, but you have some minimum cost that is your operating cost. What can happen in the market sometimes at off-peak hours, as you mentioned, is that there will be low demand or say there's high wind generation or something like that. Prices will fall below your minimum operating cost, but it is uh, economically you are required to continue operating. And so you're, you're out of the money basically. And and the way that markets deal with this largely now is either there's some portion of you just kind of lose money, which is part of what's causing these plants to shut down. And sometimes there's what's called uplift, which is sort of a, an outside the market payment that will go to these generators to make up for whatever they lost in the market. And so the proposal that, that PJM was making was sort of twofold. They said, 
maybe we should uh, change the rules so that these baseload resources, that these, these inflexible resources can, are eligible to set the LMP, the locational marginal price, when they are operating at minimum. Um, and so that would have the effect of keeping them operational and keeping them in the green, but it would also increase the LMP for everybody else. So I think inherently, and correct me if I'm wrong, this would increase wholesale prices, um, though arguably not a whole lot because this this probably doesn't happen all the time. And then PJM's proposal was to do that, which would help the inflexible resources, but then separately to introduce a separate product in the market that uh, is a load following product, basically something that inherently rewards flexibility, which is something that California ISO is also introducing. So that was sort of the, the trade-off introduced in PJM's notion. But the question, I at least that I have about it is like, why do we need, I guess it's back to the missing money question. Why do we need to ensure that these inflexible resources uh, are made whole in the first place? Is that really the job of the market, especially as somebody who's sort of a free market supporter? Like, doesn't that strike you as putting our thumb on the scale a little bit? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. And, and the way that the way that PJM has proposed to do it, I, I don't think that's the case. I mean, it really on, on sort of the, the most stripped down version of this is you're taking the uplift payments that you were talking about and putting them instead of out of market, they're in market. So that, I mean, you're, just internalizing an out of market payment, which but is not. You, but you end up, it's a little different from that, right? That's true in the case of the specific generator that would have gotten the uplift payment. But because the, um, because that generator is then allowed to set the LMP, all of the other plants also benefit from the higher LMP. Right. And that's true. But I think that that LMP is a, is a more true and accurate uh, picture of, of the system at the time. So, if prices are meant to convey information, I think you're getting better information in in the PJM proposal than before. And what do you think about the the other part of the PJM proposal, the introduction of a flexibility supporting product? I know that was mentioned a couple times in the study as well. I think it received a little less focus than reliability and resiliency, but it was also identified that we one of the things that we need more of on the grid is flexibility as well. Yeah, we absolutely need more flexibility, and if if we need new products to do that, that you know is completely consistent with the with the thrust of, of the report. I think some RTOs are going to approach it in different ways, and some people think on sort of a philosophical note that all you need is fast enough changes in energy price to incentivize that, and some say it has to be a separate product. You know, all of that is obviously up to the the RTOs to figure out exactly how to incentivize that you know that load following action and i think you know what what we're seeing in in california is is probably the uh you know on on the front end of that is is saying well how how are they going to address that problem and I, you know so each each RTO is is going to have its own answer to that but i think that in general is something that that needs to be focused on and incentivized, and uh, you know, I, I would, I would, I would expect RTOs to either come up with new products or to figure out how best to uh, incentivize a, a fast ramp with uh, 
pure energy prices to, to the extent that that's possible. All right. So in the interest of not going too far down this rabbit hole, um, like I said, we will link to the PJM proposal. And I think also at some point in the near future, try to have a separate episode of this podcast where we can actually just talk about price formation because it is important, but it's also super complicated. Uh, so we'll come back to that. Let's let's move on to the second policy recommendation in the DOE study, which is valuation of essential reliability services. Can you just describe what ERS are? If, if you ask a, a, a grid nerd, they'll get very excited about something called reactive power, which uh, is something as yeah. Uh, ask our grid team so, in the New York office about that. <laughs> exactly. So that can be you know it's its own show if you really wanted it to be, but it's it it's it's enough I I think to say that there's just a lot of things that that aren't currently priced and not currently uh, taken into account by standards and things like that. That I I think it's important to not just take things as a as a bundle as they historically were, let's say you're operating a coal plant, you know, in that plant, you have a decent amount of uh, inertia to offer to the system. You have a governor, so you have some element of frequency response. So uh, all of these things were historically part of a, a, a bundled package deal. Now, instead, if you start to unbundle those things, uh, if you have units that aren't necessarily responsive to sort of a a low f- frequency on on the grid then it gets it gets more interesting it, you 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 sort of have to unbundle the pricing as you unbundle the s- services themselves this is an interesting area and it's where you've seen some disagreement but where i would actually imagine you'd find when you dig into you know industry reactions particularly the storage industry you'd find a lot of agreement about this because you talk about you know fuel neutral um, regulatory mechanisms for these essential reliability services. And and essentially what you're defining here is something that, for example, the FERC notice of propo- proposed rulemaking it has set out to do for energy storage. You know, it's, it's told regional market operators, hey, create these rules to value energy storage for a variety of reasons. And what you're essentially saying is like, we can set those, we can make them technology neutral and not just favor storage, and the storage industry could potentially benefit. Is that an appropriate way to define this? Yeah, and I, I think each each industry, from its point of view, you know, instead of trying to get rules that specifically favor it, I think the place where hopefully we could all agree is that look, if there's a service on the grid that we need, let's define the service and then let's compete on the service. And I think that is a much more fundamental. Uh, long-term lasting change that that we can make as opposed to saying, oh, well, there's this new technology that that may need rule changes to accommodate the specific technology. Instead, it's a it's a broader look at, look, we we have a different type of service that we might need going forward. Let's define the service and compete based on sort of that amount of service that that we need. And let's not try to pick technologies. Well, I I want to just respond to like a couple things there. I, first of all, I don't I don't totally agree with your characterization, Stephen, of that FERC notice of proposed rulemaking on energy storage because what it's not it's not sitting there saying we need to create a spe- you know new incentives for energy storage. We need to 
create a special carve out. What it is saying is that we recognize that energy storage is a unique resource. It's, it's different from other resources. Um, and we need to make sure that the ISOs and RTOs are designing their market rules so that we know how energy storage can play within their markets. One of the challenges right now in capacity markets in particular is that they'll have open-ended rules. It's not entirely clear how energy storage can play and whether it can qualify. So I don't view that as being, you know, selecting a particular technology as a winner. It's just saying you need to design your rules with this in mind so that we know how it can play. And then if it can play, it can, you know, if it can, if it can compete, it wins. If not, it doesn't. The other thing I would say is that, so the, you're right, the, the kind of policy recommendations in this study, and this one in particular, which talks about valuation of essential reliability services or, or ancillary services, is reasonably anodyne. And I think you could, in, in a vacuum, everyone could agree to it. It talks about fuel neutral markets and, and energy storage and demand response could play in those markets alongside coal and nuclear and anything else. I think the reason that you're getting you know all this pushback from environmentalists and from others is the context around which the study comes out, which has nothing to do with what's actually in the study itself. So I'm not arguing against anything in the study here. But, you know, the incoming chairman of FERC, um, Neil Chatterjee, you know, recently said that he thinks coal and nuclear should receive additional compensation and recognition for the value that they provide to the grid. Obviously, the, the president has come out widely in favor of coal. So those are resource specific things that in the broader context around which the study is getting released, I think, give people who are not in favor of one or both of those resources some pause. And it seems to me to be reasonable to factor that in when you think about how the study might ultimately get used, whether or not the the study itself looks reasonable. I mean, I, I, I suppose the, the only piece I would push back on there is, I mean, the the policy environment has changed quite a bit with with respect to coal and I think it's it really the previous admin had as I would characterize it sort of a a, a pretty outward facing blunt anti coal agenda I mean uh, so I so so I th- I think just moving from that to sort of a coal neutral point of view that's going to come off to a lot of people as being incredibly pro coal I, I I think sure I think that's the fair. The fuel neutral elements that 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 I've seen, even sort of w- within this admin or outside of it, it really is. There are a lot of free market folks who are just saying, "Let's take the thumb off the scale," and that in itself is going to feel to a lot of folks like we're putting a different thumb on the scale. And uh, I would just push back on that. That of course it's going to feel that way. And you know, if if uh, if not wanting to subsidize very specific technologies is the same thing as being against them, then, you know, that is of course going to come off as anti, you know, anti-wind or anti-solar just by, by the fact of saying that we should stop subsidizing them. Right. And, and and this is why I brought up climate change earlier, because I do think that when we talk about putting a price on carbon, it does materially change the conversation. So you can put in place these more technology neutral policies, but then over top layer some kind of carbon pricing and, you know, put a value on those um, externalities of, of each technology and, and do something that is more technology neutral, but uh, still gets us to broader environmental aims. And I know that's well beyond the scope of this study. 
but I think very important for this conversation, at least in the way I see it. Um, there are two other areas, and, and we're, we've been going for a while now, so I really want to hone in on the last one that we were, were thinking about discussing. The other one is this bulk power system resilience. You want to issue more guidelines and planning for um, transmission entities to, to think about valuing res- resiliency into new and existing infrastructure. And that's something that's been ongoing for a while, particularly since Hurricane Sandy. Um, so I think a more mature conversation. The, the one about research and development of next generation um, grid reliability and resilience tools was quite interesting to me because a lot of folks said, this is a fantastic set of recommendations, more R&D on new tech to improve um, utility operations, grid opera- grid operations, um, consumer efforts to enhance system reliability. These are all great things. Interestingly, um, some of the things within DOE, like ARPA-E, uh, were not really mentioned. And also, and it's something that we wrote about at Green Tech Media too. One of our criticisms of the report was that there are a lot of distributed resources and things going on with within DOE that weren't really mentioned or talked about very much. So can you just unpack that set of recommendations and talk about why more specific DOE initiatives weren't highlighted in the report? Sure. And I I can say that, you know, even if we tried to be, well, we did try to be as comprehensive as possible, there are going to be certain things that, that we didn't touch on. And that has more to do with sort of the the time crunch, then uh, I, I, one thing I don't want folks to do is read read into any lack of something in in the study and say, well, it, it was intentional, and there, you know, there's the the new policy of of the DOE because they omitted something. Um, sort of as a as a broad point, though, I mean, we at different stages of the drafts had included very specific programs. And I think that was the the risk there was that if you start naming programs, then all of a sudden it becomes clear what you're talking about and, and what you're not. And instead of using very specific names of programs, we, we backed off of that and said, look, this is, you know, th- there's, there's a general R and D agenda that needs to be accomplished here, but we're not going to, you know, highlight very specific programs and, and leave others out, you know, even if, even if the omission were, were by accident, I don't think it would be, uh, you know, as, as we drafted it, it just, it, it didn't make sense to call out some and leave some out. And to be fair, it does talk about, I mean, one of the other big ones beyond RPE that I think covers a lot of the things that are listed in here does mention the grid modernization initiative, which, um, which is doing a lot of the same stuff and, and is important. I think, you know, I, I like this recommendation. I think pretty much everybody probably likes this recommendation. The hope I guess would be that, um, you know, the budget appropriation is there to support further R and D to the extent that DOE is doing it. Um, and that, that allocation goes toward these types of programs, whether it be the existing programs like RPE and grid modernization initiative and, and that kind of thing, or a new one to do specifically what's discussed in here. Yeah. And I, I'll, I'll just note that the, the GMI is is going to go forward, and they're they're doing a lot of very interesting work. So I, I think, in terms of things like the GMI and sort of the all the R and D that's already going on, uh, we absolutely want to keep that going. 
when I first read this study, I immediately thought this is going to be interesting to see how people react to it. I called it uh, a Rorschach test for how you see the future of the grid. It was like the first thing that I thought about when I was reading through it. And we saw that in the way certain groups reacted to it. From across the spectrum, you saw a bunch of different reactions. And it really says a lot about the values that you bring to this conversation, um, whether the, it, it be free market principles and a skepticism of renewable energy subsidies or an urgency about climate change um, and, and environmental issues, your reaction, your values about those uh, issues necessarily dictates how you react to the study. Are there any conclusions that you've read about the report that you thought were particularly spot on or that made you think differently about your own conclusions or about where this research is headed? Well, I thought your analogy was was apt. I mean, there it it is a testament to how balanced the the report is that you know we we got positive feedback from uh, across the board, and that at the end of the day speaks to the you know the the, the staff at at the DOE who who did an amazing job with this. Now, I guess you know in terms of seeing what you want to see in it. Um, I mean, that's sort of, if you, if you take, you know, an unbiased objective look and, you know, each, each, each person's set of eyes is going to see something very different, even looking at at the same objective picture. And that was the, the idea of the study was to bring enough people together that it was a comprehensive and objective look. Now, you know, if if you if you bring it, your own point of view to it, of course you'll you'll see a very different thing. So, you know, even sort of my take on the report is going to be different from someone else on staff, and even the folks who helped write the thing. You know, we we all had very different takeaways, and in fact, the the folks working on the study itself said, you know, there's certain things that they learned in the process that they wouldn't have learned if, if they hadn't been doing the study. So. I'm sure we each learned a different thing in sort of the the, the crafting of it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it's a it's a large enough volume of balanced things that you can sort of if if you're the type to cherry pick. Of course, there's there, there's going to be things that you that you find to like or to not. I'm excited for a couple of days from now when we're going to get like a 6:30 a.m. tweet about price formation from the president. <laughs> Yeah, you know, we'll we'll know who to turn to for analysis when that happens. I guess I'll just wrap up with one last question. I want to go back to your long-held belief in free markets, and I'll cite that interview that you gave in which you said, quote, it seems conventional wisdom that government should get more involved in energy. It's counterintuitive to argue that government should get out of energy, but I like the challenge. So you've really ramped up the challenge here. You're now working in one of the biggest bureaucracies in government at DOE. Is that still a guiding philosophy for you at the agency? Yes. So I, I, I still think the biggest changes are going to come not from folks doing policy to advance a certain agenda, but more to pull back the involvement of the federal government and say, look, that there's a lot of important work going on, but uh, it's not necessarily our job to guide it. Travis Fisher is a senior advisor in the Office of Electricity Delivery and Energy Reliability at the Department of Energy. He was also the lead 
on that big grid reliability study that we've been talking about for so many weeks, finally have, and we're so glad that you could come and give us more background, talk through some of the wonk. We really appreciate you being here. Of course. Thanks, guys. So, Shale, how did you feel about the conversation? I thought it was really interesting. Um, I thought Travis did a good job of explaining sort of where he stands on issues and how the report came together. I thought it was interesting that his views have evolved since some of the public statements that he made a couple of years ago that have gotten such a public outcry um, since it was known that he was the lead author on this study. So, So it was really illuminating for me. All right. Well, again, if you want to interact with us, share your thoughts on Twitter. You can find both me and Shale. You can also find Travis there on Twitter and send us an email, podcast at greentechmedia.com. Put a review up on iTunes if you want for the interchange. Helps us find listeners and send a link to your colleagues if you like this show or your friends, whoever's, uh, you know, you're the energy geek in your life. Thanks again for listening, Shale. Thanks for taking the time on this one. I know you spent a lot of time over the weekend preparing and really trying to understand some of the recommendations. So good stuff. Yeah, I'm going to stop thinking about price formation for a while now. Yeah, well, you suggested that we're going to have a future episode on that. So we'll see. With Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange, weekly conversations on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media. We'll catch you next time.